It is our tradition to stand when we read from the Bible so that we can be present and we focus, so I invite you to stand for the reading of the Word. Today we're reading all the way from the end of the Bible. In this sermon series, we started at the beginning, and in three short weeks, we're all the way at the end. Revelation chapter 21, this is the new Revised Standard Version this morning. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, promised as a bride, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among the people, among the mortals. God will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. The one who's seated on the throne said, see, I am making all things new. He said, write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. The word of God. You can be seated. Thanks be to God. It turns out that every story eventually ends, doesn't it? All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Do we tell these stories anymore, by the way? I do like green eggs and ham. Thank you, thank you, Sam, I am. God bless us, everyone. And they all lived happily ever after. Stories do come to an end. When I say this out loud this morning, what is your response and your reaction to this true truth? Stories really do come to an end. Where does your mind go? Where do our emotions go? It probably matters who's been telling us our stories. It probably matters our age and our context and the way we've begun to use our language and our metaphors when I say every story comes to an end. Where does your mind and your body go and what are the emotions? Where does it take you? There is a favorite sign in our household from a few years ago when Kirby and I traveled to Vietnam. We turned up in the country, worn and warm, exhausted, in, in our hotel, motel, some, some kind of an accommodation. We made our way to the swimming pool. We don't speak Vietnamese, if it's not very clear to you. <laughs> we are not good at Vietnamese. Here is the pool sign posted for travelers to take in. These are the instructions. I'm going to read them to you because the font is small. Number one, outside the infected skin, infectious diseases are not the swimming pool. Number two, children under the age of 10 must have a bath when relatives are directly supervising. Number three, do not swim, must wear a life jacket before the swimming pool. Number four, to bring it down before swimming pools. Guess, I don't know what that means. It's a rule, to bring it down before swimming pools. Number five, must shower prior to swimming pool. We get that one. Number six, obey. The orders directed by rescue workers. <laughs> there are rescue workers in the swimming pool. Great, good to know, right? Number seven, your, you self-preservation, money, and your page. I, I don't know. You self-preservation, your money, and your page. The general director and the staff is not responsible for money or jewelry or valuable customers. We get it. Protect your valuables, right? Would you say? Is that one? 
Number eight, for drinking, beer is not the swimming pool. Oh, you got that one. I see you now, church. And the last rule up here, you should leave the pool before the end of time. We decided not to get in this pool because we don't know when the end of the time is coming. We decided not to drink our beverage out of the pool. Listen, every story ends. When I say this, our mind and our body and our emotions go somewhere. But the biblical story says when our story ends, that we hear this loud voice saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former, the old had passed away. And there's one seating on a throne who says, death is gone and mourning is gone and crying is gone and pain is gone. When our story comes to an end, this is how it's summarized. For 20 chapters in the book of Revelation, we've been waiting for a story that will not end. There's more bad news and more bad news and more bad news. Finally, the one seated on the throne, we've been waiting for this voice. We know that it's a power struggle in the book of Revelation. We know there are powers oppressing, but we've been waiting and longing for this one voice. If you've spent any time in the book of Revelation, we know someone's seated on the throne, and we know it's not Caesar, and we know it's not an emperor, and we know it's not a president of a nation. Finally, in chapter 21, we hear the voice, the one seated on the throne is worthy to worship. It's who we just sang to this morning. The one seated on the throne speaks in a loud voice, a voice of authority. My home is with you. Our time has come and I am making all things new. It is a great word in the book of Revelation. New means never yet experienced, never before seen, something fresh, a fresh interpretation, a fresh imagination of our experience. I am making something you have not experienced and you can't even imagine, the voice says. Trauma ends and the end is inaugurated. And we save this part of the Bible for funerals usually. We read from this part of the Bible a couple weeks ago Sunday when we celebrated the life of Betty Minton here in the sanctuary. And we read these words again out at the graveside on Monday. We saved this passage for funerals and the Chun Study Men's Chorus sang to us here, no more night, no more day, no more crying, no more pain. Praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen lamb. See over there, there's a mansion that's prepared for me. When I will live with my Savior eternally, the chorus, no more night, no more pain, no more tears, never crying again, praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of this risen lamb. And friends, we wipe our tears, and we pass the tissue, and we have some punch and cookies. This is the passage we save for funerals. It's the passage that speaks of the total absence of evil in our story. And it's described by perfection here. There are seven evils that are absent. If you think the revelator is up to something, once in a while he is. There is an absence of death and mourning and weeping and pain and curse and night and the sea. It's an all-encompassing, all of this is gone. 
He lists first death because death is the first evil that comes into the story in Genesis chapter three. And then he lists the end of of the chaos of the sea because that's also in Genesis chapter one. The absence of evil. This now leaves room for something to thrive in the story. When the evil is gone, something else can grow in its place. And he sees a city descending. The story, our story, starts in a garden And we might think it ends in a garden, but the book of Revelation tells us it starts in a garden and then somehow there's this city and this city descends out of the sky and it's big and bright and brightly dressed like a bride. Listen, don't press the metaphor too far. How does a city put on a bridal gown? You tell me, right? But this is what the poet from Patmos does. He sees things lit large across the sky, like the whole sky is a canvas. And he sees God making a new thing with a huge, large city coming down, prepared like a bride. It's coming towards us, this thing called the New Jerusalem now. It's a city so large that John, the prisoner, needs to get to a higher vantage point. He goes up to a mountaintop so he can look out and see and take it all in. We see a city that's come down, descended as this bride, and then there's this wounded lamb, some kind of cosmic wounded lamb who's on the throne, and somehow this city and this lamb are together in the story. Yeah, go wander downtown Riverside today and try repeating any of these lines. How does your story go? Oh, you know, there's a city like a bride, and there's a wounded lamb on a throne, and it's happily ever after, pretty much good from there on out. Right. Super clear the apocalypse. Keep reading though. Revelation 21 says there are more details of our dream destination and they layer detail upon detail upon detail. It's a large dwelling place with exquisite pearls and gems in order to communicate to us something of worth and value here. There are 12, 12, 12, this number gets used again, 12 pillars and 12 doors. Yes, 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, 12 is an important number, but these are not to represent perfect people. This is a place simply for the people who endure to the end of the story. The city, it measures a perfect cube. They tell us it's so large it would cover half of the United States and it would equal 260 Mount Everests. Huge. Did you ever wonder in the book of John, the gospel of John, when Jesus says to the disciples, if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. Where I'm going, let not your heart be troubled. If you believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many mansions. Why does he need many? There's only 12 disciples. The book of Revelation says it's this many, more than we can describe. Early in Israel's history, there's only been one golden cube, and it's the inside part of Solomon's temple, that holy of holies, where they imagined the presence of God to dwell. That's the only reference point in the biblical story for some kind of cube like this. And now we learn that that, that God doesn't need to be in some physical building or space because God will be with the people, and the boundary between God and the humans disappears. God with us will never leave us again. This is the way the story ends. It's our friend and professor, Kendra Holoviak-Valentine at the Divinity School that tells us the book of Revelation is really doing one thing. It wants to wake us up, pay attention, choose a side. You can either be with the new Jerusalem that's descending or the city of Babylon that has been the source of every trauma. You can either be with the one descending on the throne or you can be with the beast's 
and the evil and the devil and every incarnation of wrong, the one that eats its babies while the one on the throne sacrifices for its babies. There's no fence sitting, Kendra tells us in the apocalypse, right? It's so clear. Choose your power. Read the story up and against any headline you read this week in the news, whether it's ball games, whether it's the craziest headline of the week, Captain Kirk goes to space. Whether it's whistleblowers for Facebook, oh, there's a power there. Read this story up and against any other power structure in our world. The New Jerusalem is God's alternative to every version of power gone wrong. The New Jerusalem is what God does when God does something new, never before yet seen. And every empire that is built in its own image on the backs of human beings is indicted in this story, church. So I'm gonna speak simply now and directly now. Because that's the apocalypse and that's all the language and the words. John the Revelator can't get enough words to describe to us what he's seen. But if we were to speak simply now about this story in the back of our Bible, we would say the text tells us, this text that we say for funerals, right, and for the sad times in our lives, this cannot be reduced to a bumper sticker or a motto. We can't reduce the story to something that says, I know the end and God wins because this flattens the story over two millennia of chaos and trauma. It doesn't do justice to the damage, the chaos done to creatures, by creatures, and what the creator has endured. We save this text for funerals, but the text wants to say more. The last chapters, they're not just sprinkles on the cupcake at the end of the story. It turns out the heavy lifting is not all the way done yet in God's tale. The heavy lifting is not done. We're not preparing for the absence of evil. We are preparing for the presence of Jesus. And there is a difference. One is neg what we would call negative theology or a scarcity reasoning, right? Negative or def def deficit narrative. We're preparing for the absence of evil. That's like saying on Sabbath that I am... Um, um, I, am, I am going to now rest instead of welcome sacred time. I'm going to stop working instead of rest in sacred time. It's like saying the house is absence of dirt and chaos rather than we are now welcoming the holiness in our home. It's like the couple that told me years ago, we've never had a fight in our marriage. That tells me absolutely zero about the quality of their relationship. But what is beautiful and life-giving and meaningful? Don't tell me what you don't do. Tell me what you do do. Tell me what it is that gives your life beauty and meaning. We're not preparing for the absence of evil. We're preparing for the presence of Jesus. Wherever you've been in your life today with your friends and your finances, with your lack of food and stability, with your arguing or your bickering, with your thriving even, remember this week, we're preparing for the arrival of Jesus. Jesus to join us in all these locations and spaces and relationships. This is the direction the story moves, what the story wants to tell us. The end of the story says more than this is the absence of evil. Yes, we long to stop our weeping. We, stop to lo we, we long to stop our warring. We long to stop our fighting and our anxiety. We long to stop our poverty. We long to stop 
all forms of evil, including racism. The Bible tells us so. We long for this. However, this has not been about the absence, but about the presence of something more, the presence, the very presence of God in our lives. There's an overwhelming, reconciling, healing presence of God we can expect in our future. And we don't know when and we don't know how that God will dwell with God's people and God's people will belong to God, but that's what's coming. God will dwell with them and they will be God's. Plural. That's, a, that's important. In the original language, that's appropriate. God's peoples. God is reconciling peoples together to make them one people. Somehow peoples will flourish together in the presence of God by the end of our story. The book of Revelation takes this part so seriously that it mentions every nation, tribe, language, and people again and again and again and again. Chapter 5, 7, 10, 11, 13, 14, 17. There are people who can be reconciled among nations, tribes, languages, and people. Apparently so, the end of our story says. There are kings and leaders of nations who will enter the city bearing honor and glory rather than commodities and economies and abuse. Apparently so, the end of the story says. There are leaders who are not corrupt. Yes, because a few chapters back, if you've spent time in the book of Revelation and in Revelation 18, 17 and 18, the longest lament, the longest crying out, the longest protest comes from the merchants who can't get the commodities they want. They're whining. In the grocery store yesterday, there was a woman with a grocery list who said to me, I just get so irritated when I can't have what I want. Don't you? It's probably not the best day for her to ask me about baking soda versus evil in the apocalypse, right? There's a difference between being a little irritated and being repulsed by the evil of the world. Yes, there are somehow leaders coming, people coming, who value something uh, more, the love of God more than humans as commodities. Revelation 18 said this, this is before all the evil fell in the story. The merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. It's cargo of gold and silver and jewels and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet. It's every kind of scented wood, all articles of ivory, all articles of costly wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense. This is a grocery list, right? Frankincense, wine, olive oil, choice flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, horses, chariots, and slaves. Human lives at the end of a list of commodities, humans buying and selling one another. When Babylon falls, the merchants mourn because they can't buy and sell goods, and they mourn because they can't buy and sell humans. Humans who put other humans at the bottom of the list. Yet this is all over according to the end of our story. Apparently people have potential to value what God values. 
So in the new city, there are these 12 doors on three sides of the city, and the, days, the doors of the city stay open day and night. No door needs to be locked. No door needs to be closed. No door needs a guard or an attendant or a weapon. Revelation 21 says, the gates of the city will never be shut by day, and there will, they will, no, not, there will be no night there. It's an open-door city, friends, which means everyone is safe. 24-7 in whatever this new newness is God is creating for the languages, the nations, the tribe, the people. The past two weeks, we've looked at Bible passages that have had to do with maybe us misusing part of our sacred story. We looked at Noah and Ham and the curse on an entire generation and a group of people. We looked at the story last week of Onesimus, a slave supposedly told to go home and continue his life in enslavement. And while we know enslavement in the Bible is not the same as chattel slavery and more recent slavery in our world, we understand that on the backs of the Bible we've done damage. Humans owning other humans as a commodity. We looked at those two stories the last week, and perhaps today we can put Revelation right next to these. Less a story we've abused and maybe something we've overlooked even. Even for Advent people preoccupied with the book of Revelation, maybe there is something here we've overlooked that in God's future, God will eradicate something, that nationalities and cultures, they mean something in God's future. Those are not eradicated. Evil is eradicated. But somehow nationalities and cultures come forward with us. And if you're from a place and you speak a language and you love your food and your culture, this is beautiful news. The end of the story says that God will not be flattening everything. They will carry over. Our cultures won't be muted. They will be called forward and spotlighted. Some people think that when we have this conversation about racism, we're doing something highly political, but what we're doing is something highly biblical. Highly biblical. This is one of the times where it might be best to start at the end of our Bible then and read backwards, friends. I remember years ago we asked, you know, are you one of those who you go to the end of the story and you read the ending first? There's a few of you here, right? When we asked this question years ago, Karen Tyner's sitting right over here and she just blurted out, I do, I do, I do. She didn't care if we all even knew, she's one of those. This might be a great time to go to the end of the story and read in reverse. Start with Revelation 22, go to Revelation 21, work backwards all the way till Revelation 1, till we have clear in our mind what is possible when evil is loose in God's good world. And then go to the beginning of the story, Genesis 1, and read where everything is beautiful long before it's broken. In God's story, it is beautiful before it's broken. By the way, Revelation is written to the churches. I'm not sure why we use it for evangelistic crusades and new believers as if we're gonna convert people with the apocalypse. The story, the letter is written to people like you and I, disciples, people who somehow already know Jesus and God's story. This is insider conversation. It's a letter to the choir, friends. So if we would like to know what the church has to do in these last days... We'll lean into this where every nation, tribe, language, and people will be preserved by God. 
This is no time to be complacent and to be quiet. There is something called a prophetic uproar that matters right now. At the end of the story, God's future is marked by racial, ethnic, national strife, no national strife, no alienation, no violence, and that's a mouthful. That's our story. If you picked up some of the resources we've been passing out the last two weeks and you're standing here on week three going, yes, and what do I do next? This little volume, Lead, the Anti-Racism Challenge, mostly Adventist contributors, one reflection a day, assignments at the end of every chapter. At the end of every chapter, it will tell us, would you like to learn more about how to listen? Would you like to know more about how to embrace other people when they tell us our stories that we would actually believe them? Would we like to be, know, know how to be more of a, an advocate? How do we do that? Would we like to know how to dream bigger dreams? What would be the things we might put into our life? We can do this personally and privately or we can organize ourselves in conversations with other friends. There's one church in Cincinnati that has these groups and they're called undivided groups where they've intentionally split up the church, those who were willing, into cross-cultural, cross-generational groups so they could talk honestly about these things. If you're wondering, what do I do next? There are assignments in the back of this book. It turns out there's the arrival of the great kingdom and then there are millions of great kingdom arrivals. Can I say that again? Revelation tells us about the arrival of the great kingdom, but along the way, there is the arrival of millions of great kingdoms. While we wait for the one, we work for the others. This is what it means to have a prophetic roar right now. Every one of us has to decide how we'll act our part. This series has aligned with Hispanic Heritage Month, Indigenous Peoples Day this last week. Thank you for those of us who reminded us that all oppressed humans, all people, all kinds of black and brown are in this conversation. Yes and yes and yes. I can't tell you what you could be doing. I can only tell you, I know the Spirit's been doing a thing in me. So if I look at the titles I purchased over the last two years, I realize I'm gravitating towards something and the Spirit is doing a thing in me. And when I wonder why we still have regional segregated con conferences in the Seventh-day Adventist denomination, I reach for a book to help me understand, not to condemn. It turns out we have separate, separate, separate uh, divisions and distinctions because we don't play nice together yet. So I'm the white preacher. I cannot tell my black colleagues, integrate. What that means is assimilate. And we've already been there. That's the whole book of the Bible. A whole story, friends. I can't tell you what would be next for you. I can only tell you what it's meant for me. Like my first protest rallies were this past year during pandemic where somehow we couldn't sit still. A few of us had to go downtown and mask and distance and be present and be seen. Not because we're risky, but because we're hearing the spirit in our lives. We're standing downtown, a few students from the university, a couple professors, a few of us here from the church. Before I even leave the car, I feel this 
unsettledness. And so I reach for my phone, and I begin to call my black colleagues in ministry and ask them, how are you? It turns out they're not okay. And I've never thought about it before last year. That didn't come from me, that came from the Spirit. I have this crazy alarm that's going off on my phone every night at 8.24 p.m. I don't know why 8.24. Somehow the alarm got set automatically for 8.24 p.m. And at that hour, I get this little lullaby that gets playing to me. Lullaby, na-na. I don't go to bed at 8.24, church. <laughs> my spouse will tell you. My colleagues will tell you. I'm not a good sleeper. I've been telling Pastor Raywin, the alarm on my phone must be for you and your household. Small children. But you know what? I've decided that that alarm on my phone is for something because it signals me long before I'm willing to shut down that I need to prepare for something different. It's signaling me to begin to turn off the lights internally and stop thinking and stop my activity and prepare to receive rest. Maybe we all need prompts in our lives that will help signal us. We're not preparing for the absence of evil. We're preparing for the presence of Jesus. Now, what shall prompt me based on this truth? I've been interacting with the artist Melinda Beck, who gives us this image from the New York Times in 2019. It caught my eye. We leave it on the screen for a little bit. She's asked to illustrate often for the New York Times and often for bestseller lists and book reviews. This happened to be a collection of books on curses and blessings, particularly stories of black and brown-skinned people. You can see a serpent wrapped around the neck, but you can see the, the blossoming on the top of the head, right? And when I asked her, what is this about? She said, you know, they, they gave me the story from creation and somehow I could just see what was happening in that story was embodied and it was, be, and it was possessing the people. And my words, the people have options. In the end of the story, that serpent disappears, church. Before our story was broken, it was beautiful. So we're not worrying about the absence of evil. We're thinking about welcoming the presence of the Holy One. That's the story. All stories come to an end. That's where ours ends. When our oldest was a little one, I found her in the back of the church. She was tiny. We didn't actually know she could read as well as she was reading. She was reading the book of Revelation all by herself in the back. I peeked over, saw her Bible open to Revelation, and I gasped. And I tried to fix my face. Because I was raised with an interpretation of Revelation that I'm still working out. So I took a breath and we asked, I asked our child, why Revelation? Don't you want to read some Jesus stories? She said, oh, mama, this story, it's bad, and it gets worse, and then it gets beautiful. It gets so beautiful. I love this story. 
Friends, all stories end. It so happens our ending preserves everyone's unique, diverse contributions in this life. That's the story we find ourselves in. Praise God, praise God, praise God. Amen.